Gospel of John chapter 1, and we'll uh, look at verses 1 through 5, and then drop down to 10 through 14. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, the Word already was. He was before the beginning. The Word's the title for Jesus here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God the Father. He's a distinct person from, but had intimate fellowship with the Father. Occasionally, preachers would get in the pulpit and say, God was lonely, so he decided to create the universe to have somebody to play with. He doesn't need us. He wasn't lonely. Father, Son, Holy Spirit had perfect fellowship forever, just sheer super grace is the reason they create, and for his glory. In the beginning, the word Jesus already was. He was eternally with God the Father, he himself being the second person of the Trinity, and the Word, Jesus, was deity, was full deity, was full uh, everything that God the Father is and his character and his essence, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are. All things came into being through him. He was the active agent of organic creation, and apart from him, nothing came into being that's come into being. And more important than the physical universe, time, space, matter, and energy, in him was zoe, not bios, biological life, but spiritual life. And the life was the light of men. There, the life is a title for Jesus in his incarnation. The light is a title for Jesus also in his incarnation. And even though he was rejected by the powers that be political Roman and religious Jewish, the light keeps on shining in the darkness of this fallen world, which isn't the way it should be, and we've been built for something so much better and the darkness did not paralambano, which can mean to grasp, either in the sense of understanding with your mind, or to grasp and do away with or do something too. And so this is double entendre on purpose, Nancy. John is saying, hey, the world didn't understand who he was by and large, many individual exceptions, but by and large, powers that be didn't grasp with their mind who he was. And it looks like they won by grabbing him and crucifying him, but what do we know happens three days after the crucifixion? So he was not defeated. In fact, that was the ultimate. Drop down to verse 10. He, the one who was before the beginning, the active agent of organic creation, was in the world. It just looked like an average person, the God-man Savior who looked like a human being. And the world had been made through him, but the world, by and large, didn't know him, didn't Paralambano didn't grasp him, didn't understand him. They thought they grabbed him, but they really didn't. He came into his own. The Jewish people had all the prophecies, all the prophets, all the scripture. And those who were his own, by and large, many individual exceptions, but generally speaking, did not receive him. But to each individual exception who receive him, saving faith time is active, receptive trust, not just mental assent to facts, right? To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who he is and what he did, right? Who were born spiritually, eternally, not of blood, will of flesh, will of man, but of God. And the word, Jesus, from before the beginning, the second person of Trinity, took on flesh. It's called the incarnation. He becomes Man, without ceasing to be God, one person with two natures, and dwelt among us. And watch this, Murray that word skene, that's translated dwelt, was used in the 
Greek translation of the Old Testament for the tabernacle where God manifested his reality in the tabernacle. Remember the glory of God fills the tabernacle. The uh, uh, word, the second person of the Trinity before the creation, the creator became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. He was the God-man savior in that human body. And we saw his glory. And that's cool because John is writing this and what three guys actually saw his glory at the transfiguration. Peter, James, and we saw his, we saw the transfiguration and the resurrection and the ascension. But he's thinking there, the transfiguration. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, the Lord Jesus obviously is the center of the Christian faith, center of the Christian life, center of human history, and will be the center of all eternity. And so I think most Christians have probably read the biblical gospels, or at least have listened to messages on the biblical gospels. And so most of us know most of the individual events in the life of Christ. Uh, we know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Most of us have heard that. We heard it in Sunday school, hopefully have read that in John 11 ourselves, have heard better preachers than me preach on that. Uh, we know he was tempted by Lucifer. Everybody in here, that's not a new fact for you. You, you know Jesus was tempted by Lucifer. Uh, you know, he warned about the unpartable sin. I've always said, I'm the kind of person, if I can mess anything up as a pitcher, no matter if I had 15 point, 15 point, 15 run lead and had not walked anybody, I'm thinking, you know, what's the most people I can walk here and still win? This is why I wasn't any good. I mean, Tiger Woods doesn't think like, how much, how many bogeys can I make and still win? He's thinking, how many more birdies can I make? I'm always thinking, what's the stuff, what's the worst I can do and still win this thing? So that's not very good. But, uh, yeah, when I heard about the unpardonable sin as a little kid, I thought, man, i got to find out what that is. And I hope I haven't done it yet. You know, you ever get that feeling, Amber? I mean, that's kind of what I thought. So we know he taught about that. Uh, we know he turned water into wine. Baptists think he turned water into grape juice, but that's a whole different thing. Uh, transfiguration, we talked about that. We know he told Nicodemus to be born again. We know those individual stories. But very few Christians who know about those stories, and maybe have read them multiple times, know how they fit together. Know, know how the life of Christ fits together. Now, we all know it starts at Bethlehem. It actually starts a long time before Bethlehem, right? But we know Christmas, you know, kind of starts the thing. And we know Easter ends the thing. It ends the life of Christ. Not really, but, you know, those are the kind of the frames, right? And everybody knows that, quote, unquote. But do we know how these other things fit together? I would say very few Christians do. And that's why... For no extra charge, we're giving you, one last time maybe, um, the life of Christ A through Z, where we're going to put the 26 major events. Hey, Lori, this is gold, man. The 26 major events in the life of Christ in alphabetical order. So once you learn this system, you can think through the life of Christ when you're jogging, when you're driving, when you're praying, um, when you're reading the Gospels. You just open up Matthew anywhere, David, Michael, David. That was my old bugaboo. I used to call you David, right, for a long time. You're David, right? Um, but uh, you remind me of King David. That's the reason I call you that, right? You're not supposed to lie at church, right? But uh, Michael can just open up his four Gospels anywhere, and once you know the system, within a couple of verses, you're going to know where it fits in the overall trajectory of the life of Christ. And I have found that just so profitable for me, and I hope that you'll feel the same way. Uh, but today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to introduce this Life of Christ A through Z system, and then this summer work through the individual component parts. And uh, let's just pray that uh, I'll have a clear heart and a pure, clear mind, I should say. Slow down, brain, 
and a pure heart as I go through that. But let's pray for uh, teachability and troops and also our uh, peace officers and firefighters. And I realized I, I had that picture. I took that picture recently uh, a year ago when the twins were down here for a function. We went and saw the fire truck. But this is uh, these are guys and gals that put themselves on the line so we can, uh, as Mike's already prayed, enjoy our First Amendment freedoms to do this without fear of official persecution. So uh, since uh, uh, we're going to start calling Lloyd Mr. Mr. 15, because he uh, objected to the 15th verse in Third John, but only because his Bible only had 14, uh, I'm going to ask Lloyd to uh, lead us in opening prayer. And let's, let's pray that we'll really be teachable to the life of Christ A through Z, not just as intellectual material, but just as devotional material to draw closer to him and appreciate him more. Okay. Okay, this morning we'll uh, do our survey, overall survey of uh, Life of Christ, A through Z. Talking about the one who was sent, go to uh, John chapter 6. We're going to emphasize that um, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, have distinct roles to play in the, in the plan of salvation, and the Lord Jesus voluntarily takes a subordinate role, Okay. He is the sendee, not the sender. Uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And you see him say this a lot once you start noticing it. But one of my favorite places to start with that concept is in John 6. Look at verse 39 and 40. Jesus is talking and he says, This is the will of him who sent me. Now, who's the one who sent Jesus? God the Father, right, Debbie? God the Father is the author, or uh, Jack, think of God the Father as the architect of the plan of salvation. Jesus is the active agent of salvation. He actually does the work of redemption. And then the Holy Spirit is the activating agent. It convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, opens our hearts, draws us uh, to so we can believe. But Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me, God the Father, the sender, the architect, the planner of the plan of salvation, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Let me say it again and personalize it. This is the will of my Father. God the Father is the author, the architect of the plan of salvation, that everyone, Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, white, black, doesn't matter, that everyone who beholds the Son with the eyes of faith and believes in him, has eternal life, and I myself will raise him up in the last day. Uh, is that incredible? I mean, you can read that so much you get used to it. Jesus, if you put your name in the blank there, Jan, this is the will of my Father, that Jan, who has beheld the Son of the eyes of faith and believed in him, has eternal life, and Jesus himself will raise her up on the last day. I mean, that's for you, sister. I mean, that's what that's Jesus saying that. That's That's even stronger than if Dallas Theological Seminary said that or Chuck Swindoll, or Billy Graham, the Southern Baptist Convention, you know? I mean, that's strong. So we're going to emphasize that, and uh, I don't really want to have one theme statement, but at the bottom of your, uh, maybe the first page in your notes for today, in the beginning was the Word, the Word already was before the beginning, and the Word is a distinct person, but full deity was with and having fellowship with God the Father, and the Word was full deity, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us because he was sent. He was 
the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So this little diagram is an attempt to kind of show that, where you've got the Trinity here, right? It's the second person. So beware of praying prayers to the Father and thanking him for dying on the cross. The Father did not die on the cross. The Father sent the Son to die on the cross, right? Uh, just, it's, theolog- it's theological, but it's true. Uh, Jesus is one person with two natures since the virgin conception and for all eternity. Now he's the glorified God-man, and we're waiting for him to come back and end history on God's terms. Life of Christ, A through Z, one Savior, four Gospels, 26 events, and they're all in alphabetical order in English. How did that happen? It's awesome. Uh, let's walk through this. Uh, look at Luke chapter 1. A in this system stands for angels announce the pregnancy, the supernatural pregnancy. And it's actually more than that. We're going to have John the Baptist pregnancy next week when we look at this more closely, a supernormal pregnancy. But for this morning's survey, let's focus on Luke 1. Look at uh, verse 26. A, angels announce to Mary, and then later, about three months later or more, to Joseph. We got a supernatural pregnancy here. But I love this. And um, look at the way Mary and Elizabeth, too, are really honored. She's not the mother of God. She's the mother of humanity of Jesus, but she's not the mother of God. She's not the co-redemptrix. She's not the queen of heaven, but she's probably one of the greatest people who ever lived, maybe the uh, third greatest woman of all time next to Debbie and my grandmother. And then you got the Virgin Mary. Okay? Now, in the sixth month of... Elizabeth's pregnancy, and she's too old to have children, Elizabeth is, with John the Baptist, who wasn't a Baptist, he was a Jew, but we'll talk about that next week. Gabriel, an angel, uh, was sent from God to a city, a little city called Nazareth, which wasn't didn't have a great reputation. There was an, a Roman army base nearby, and bad things can happen sometimes. To a virgin who was engaged to Joseph. And both of them are of the descendants of David. And that's very important for reasons we talked about last week, that the Messiah has to be a direct descendant of King David. Uh, and the virgin name was Mary. And coming in, the angel, who always looks like a big, powerful linebacker, and people are always kind of shocked when they see him in biblical times. I don't think they appear that often today, but they're all over the room right now, I'm quite sure. Uh, greetings, favored one, the Lord's with you. And she was very perplexed. That's kind of a leading, that's kind of like, Hey, like a salesman saying, I've got something, you, I've got an offer for you, you're not going to be able to refuse. And you're going, oh, what's he going to try to sell me? You know, what's, what's he going to do to, to me here? Uh, and the angel says, don't be afraid. Everybody's always afraid when they see angels because they're not little wimpy babies, chubby babies with little wings of powerful linebacker types. You have found favor with God, for behold, you're going to conceive in your womb with no masculine help and bear a son, and you're going to call him Yeshua. You're going to call him God's Savior. And he'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God, God the Father, will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And I take that very literally after the second advent. He's going to reign over the world from the throne of David in Jerusalem. We talked about that last week. right? Not all Christians believe that. Some think the church is doing that now spiritually. And Mary says one thing. She's engaged. What's Joseph going to say when I turn out pregnant? He says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. Now, that's a question of just, I want more information. I don't doubt it. I just don't understand it. And I think God honors those kind of questions. Angel answered and said, 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is going to be a supernatural virgin conception and the power of the Most High. Can't reproduce this in the laboratory. Will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Uh, behold, even your relative Elizabeth, as an analogy, not exactly the same thing, but Elizabeth's way too old to have conceived. She had a supernormal pregnancy. She's conceived in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month of pregnancy for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary says, okay, let's go with the plan. I'm, I'm, I'm all in. Okay. That's angels announced. Now, by the way, we talked about the trajectory of the life of Christ. A lot of us know individual stories, right, Dustin? But we don't always know how the thing fits together. You know, you start with angels announced the pregnancy and then birth in Bethlehem, and you end with the expiatory execution, his death for our sins. Yes, yay, Jesus really did rise from the dead like he predicted, and then the ascension zapped from Zion back to heaven to the throne of God. But what happens between B and X? Well, basically... You have two phases. Phase one is at the beginning of the ministry, Jesus, who's been announced by the prophets for 2,000 plus years. The Messiah's on the ground. John the Baptist and the spirit of Elijah has been preparing the nation. They're supposed to be looking. And Jesus is teaching the truth like nobody's ever taught it before and doing things nobody's done before. And he's proclaiming himself as Messiah to the nation of Israel as widely as possible. And he's doing big miracles and big messages. And the crowds get bigger, 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 bigger. But this creates a crisis in the home office in Jerusalem. Because the religious bureaucracy has got to do something with him. they got to take a position on him. Right, Kitty? Because he's become big, too, too famous to ignore. And if they embrace him, the whole system goes down because it's corrupt. So what do they do? They offer up opposition, and watch this. They can't deny the miracles of Jesus because he's doing them right in front of them. So what do they do? They impugn the source. Oh, the unpardonable sin is looking at Jesus Christ in the eyes and watching his supernatural works and saying, I don't want you, I won't have you, I categorically reject you, and whatever supernatural power you've got is satanic. That's what the institutional leaders of Judaism said at O, and that's the pike's peak of the ministry of Christ. And after that, Jesus does things like predict his death to the disciples, and they don't want to hear it. He does stuff like healing people by saying, don't tell anybody about this until after uh, the dust settles and I'm resurrected. Whereas the first phase is, let's get the word out as widely as possible. Once the leaders play their card and say, hey... Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, like the end of the Wizard of Oz. This guy is a satanically possessed false prophet. Yeshua HaMashiach is a satanically possessed false prophet. That's the party line. The more miracles he does, how's he doing miracles according to the Jewish leaders? Satanic power. The more miracles, the more evil he's committing, right? And that's a, that's a capital crime under the Old Testament law. So he starts circling the wagons, and rather than proclaiming to the nation, what does he do in the second phase? He's preparing the 12, the 11, to carry on after X, Y, and Z. So once you see just that, suddenly a lot of stuff starts making sense. But let's put this on a map again because these are real places, real people, real events. There's the flat earth, right? That's where we live roughly, okay? Right in the center of the earth, right? Okay, uh, that's where Israel is. I love that. How about that? Is that better? Right in there. 
so small they don't even have room to put Israel on that particular map. Uh, that's where Israel is. It used to be in Kansas, and they moved. No, it's, no. It's just that shows you how small it is compared to the contiguous United States. But then there's the other side of the world. Karen, look, that's Israel. It's teeny weeny, but it's right. Right, it's been called the belly button of the world, and you kind of see why. That's the side of the world for sure. Uh, it's right there, circled. Now I was going to use this map as our baseline map. And boy, it's hot in here. And by the way, while somebody's turning down the air conditioning, can that uh, mic, if you don't mind, just crank it down. But watch this. I realized this morning that I've been here almost 30 years, and I don't think we've ever, more than once or twice, had a Sunday where both Dale Corbin and Ron Miller were both out of town at the same time. And I thought, you know, I thought, you know, if Homer and Pam don't show up, we're just going to cancel services because I'm not even going to try to do it. Well, I'm a main man there, so it's, it's kind of weird. I was going to go with this one. It's just too busy. So I'm going to go with a real basic map as our baseline map through the system. We're going to walk through that in a minute. But watch this, and I appreciate David Yeager telling me this. That's very deceptive. That's a nice, clear map. But it's very deceptive. And Mimi, you won't believe how hilly everything is unless you're on the coastline because it looks more like that. In fact, it does look exactly like that. And we talked about that last week when we talked about Jerusalem, right? So it's very important to remember that, okay? Let's walk through the A through Z real synthetically survey fashion. A stands for what? Angels announced the virgin conception, supernatural pregnancy. B stands for birth in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Bet means house. Lehem means bread. The bread of life was born in Bethlehem. And more importantly, nothing much had happened in Bethlehem for a thousand years. What happened a thousand years before Jesus was born? Who, who lived in who was born in Bethlehem? You remember? King David. Yeah. Nothing really big had happened in a thousand years. Uh, in fact, I've often thought the uh, shepherds overlooking their flocks, right before the angel comes and says, hey, the Messiah's been born, they're saying, man, nothing ever exciting happens on this job. Nothing's happened here for a thousand years, right? So watch. Uh, Nazareth is where the story starts for our purposes because the angel comes to Mary and then several months later to Joseph and gives the all clear, this is a supernatural virgin conception. Uh, but then watch, the birth is down here in Bethlehem. Unfortunately, the map doesn't have, include Bethany, but not Bethlehem, but it's like six miles due south. So Mary and Joseph, as the Matthew passage talks about, journeyed south because of a Roman tax census, and they just happened to be in Bethlehem, which is important because Micah, 5-2, an Old Testament prophet in 700 B.C. predicted the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, not Nazareth. So he's got to be born in Bethlehem to qualify. So we got A and B. What do we got so far? Angels announced the pregnancy, the super normal, supernatural, I should say, virgin conception. And then B stands for what? Birth in Bethlehem, right? Then we have C, carpentry career. The, the term in the original Greek that's translated carpenter, Murray is tecton, which means skilled worker in wood or stone. And he could have built cabinets and beds, but he more likely he laid very fine mosaic floors and did some really fine furniture kind of work. And during the working lifetime of Jesus in Nazareth as a tecton, two miles due north of that, the city of Sepphoris was renovated by the Romans as a showcase to impress all the locals about Roman uh, culture. And they recruited artisans like Jesus from a 500-mile radius to, as quickly as possible, build a city. And we'll show you. 
in a couple of weeks when we look at letter C, some of the things we saw in Sepphoris many years ago, last time we were there, we'll go to Sepphoris again. So that's carpentry career. And in passages like Mark 6, 3, Jesus is called a carpenter. Now watch this. If you're, if you're looking at my list of A, B, C, and D stuff, there's a big, Nancy, there's a big time gap between the birth, um, of Jesus in Bethlehem and his carpentry career, or at least, uh, the end of his carpentry career and the beginning of his public ministry. And because the last thing we read about Jesus as a young person is when he's 12 years old and he goes with his parents to Jerusalem for the Passover, remember? And then the next thing we read about is him submitting to John the Baptist for baptism. He's at least 30. Luke says he's about 30 when this happens. Um, you got, what, 18-year gap there. So National Geographic and the Discovery Channel every couple of years will say, well, he obviously went to India and became a Buddhist, or he went to Africa and, you know, met with a witch doctor and all this stuff. Uh, I don't think there's any reason to believe that, in part because they describe him as a carpenter during that period. So he's in and around Gal- in and around uh, Nazareth. That's the city. Galilee is the region. That's the region of Galilee. Like Oklahoma is a region. It's a state. Duncan's a city. So that's important to remember. And also because, and this is really important, D&E. D&E, Chris, is when the ministry of Jesus starts. And they go together. Dove descends at the baptism. Enemy entices the temptation. Uh, when Jesus ends his carpenter career and begins his public ministry, the first thing he does is find this prophet who's God has sent the first prophet for 400 years since Malachi who's saying the Messiah is here and he's about to make himself known. And Jesus identifies with that prophet, John the Baptist. And, of course, John says, you ought to be baptizing me. He says, just do it. Just do it. I want to identify what you're saying. And so that's very important. And what happens right after Jesus is physically baptized, God the Father speaks and says what? This is my beloved son in whom I'm pretty happy. What does he say? I'm well pleased. So uh, he didn't go to India and become a Buddhist. He didn't go to Africa and see which doctor. He worked hard with his hands for 18 years or so and lived a perfectly righteous life, which means you can be a carpenter. I'm not sure he ever hit his thumb with a hammer because he's the perfect carpenter, but if he ever did, he wouldn't have said any bad uh, words or anything like that. And so his righteousness is declared by the voice of God the Father when D, Dove, descends at the Duncan. And then immediately after the baptism, the Holy Spirit drives him to go do one-on-one spiritual combat with Lucifer, who's a real spirit being. He doesn't wear a red costume with a pointed tail and a pitchfork. They want you to believe the cartoonish figure because it's easy not to believe in that person he's also by the way amanda you know this lucifer is a spirit being but he can only be one place at one time he's not omnipresent he's not omnipotent he's not uh um the pre- what is it, omniscient i'm not pe- omniscient omnipotent omnipresent it's none of those things but he's very intelligent he's super malicious and he goes one-on-one with jesus and after 40 days of fasting the climactic three temptations are, high, are highlighted, and they're all kind of uh, temptations uh, to do. Hey, watch this, Ethan. The three temptations of Jesus we know about are all temptations to do the right thing the wrong way. Is it okay to eat? But it's not okay to use your power selfishly to create a snack for yourself. 
right? Stuff like that. So it's all about servant leadership. Okay, we looked at five letters. We've got to go pick up the pace here. People are going to be here all day. Uh, what's A? Angels announce the pregnancy, right? B, birth in Bethlehem. C, carp- 18 years, carpenter career. D and E go together. D is dove descends at the baptism. The righteousness is declared. E, enemy entices. The righteousness is demonstrated, right? Okay. Now, F stands for first followers. Now, watch this. Um, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist somewhere around here. Then he's tempted, and he goes back just north of the Dead Sea between Jericho and uh, the uh, that point there. Okay? We know that historically and from some other reasons. But when we go to Israel, after we look around Galilee for a couple of days, we're going to get in a bus, and we're going to drive right past there. And the Israeli government, bless their hearts, has built a big tourist trap. I mean, a, a place where you can get refreshments and buy some cool books. And uh, you can rent a baptismal gown. And if you if your preacher is too lazy uh, to, to baptize you, you can pay a guy a couple of uh, bucks and he'll baptize you. And a lot of people like to be baptized where Jesus was, where the Israeli government says. But it didn't happen there. It happened down there. And in uh, F, first followers... Right after the temptation, Jesus goes back to the area where John the Baptist is baptizing, and both in John one twenty nine and the next day in John one thirty five, John the Baptist says, "That's the one. That's the guy I baptized. That's the Messiah. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." And we read about fellows from Galilee. Watch this, Scott. Galilee is the north region. Judea is the south region. We're in Judea, Judean wilderness here, uh, Jordan River. But some guys from Galilee who are commercial fishermen who've heard about John the Baptist ministry and want to know who the Messiah is have come down there on their vacation and they're hanging out with John the Baptist and John the Baptist says, that's the guy. And it says, one of the guys who heard, we've got John, the writer of the gospel, and Andrew hearing John the Baptist saying, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, that's the Messiah. They follow him and Jesus says, let's sit down and talk. And after a couple hours of talking, Andrew and John are convinced Jesus is the Messiah. And that's the passage where Andrew goes and gets his brother, who's come down on his vacation too, for the week, to find out about what, Jesus, what the Messiah is all about. And it says, Andrew says, we have found him who the, all the prophets have talked about. We found the Christ. And I would say, what do, you, what do you mean you found? I think he found you. You didn't find him. But anyway, that's first followers. And uh, if you want to remember the first five followers that are mentioned in that passage, just remember the country of China. No, don't remember China. Move up one over. Japan. John, Andrew, Philip, Peter, and Nathaniel. Those are the first five. So we go to a Bible trivia test. You might be able to do real well there. Okay? That's first followers. Now, these guys are all from Galilee. Jesus meets them a couple of days later. They're all back home. And Jesus gets invited to a wedding uh, in Cana, which is south and a little bit. West of Nazareth, okay, within walking distance. And watch this. According to the Mormon church, Ken, you know who the groom was at this wedding? According to the Mormon church, this was the first time of many times Jesus got married. But if you read the account, it says Jesus was invited to the wedding. Now, I was married many years ago. I was very much younger, had a lot of hair when I needed it and stuff. And Amber, you... You won't believe it, but I had full head of hair at one point, you know. But I've used my 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 brain so much, you know, it's just burned all the follicles <laughs> over the years. But I don't remember getting an invitation at that wedding. I think it was I was supposed to just show up. Did you get an invitation to your wedding? 
Yeah, no, you, the groom doesn't get an invitation. So Jesus wasn't married that day, but he did turn water into wine to keep the wedding reception going. Now watch this. Undiluted wine was called strong drink, and in the Old Testament, kings and priests weren't supposed to drink it under any circumstances. Proverbs says, give strong drink to those who are dying to you know minimize the pain. The wine they're drinking would have been watered down three parts water to one part wine, five part water to one part wine, or ten parts water, one part, part wine. The reason that the average person drank a lot of ten to one wine is because you couldn't get good water then or now very easily. Uh, there, you know, most of the, the river water was contaminated. They don't get a lot of rain. Cistern water kind of becomes dank. So it's more of a water purification thing than anything else. But it's not water into uh, grape juice because, or water into Kool-Aid. That's technically, that's not a miracle. Okay. I can do that. You know, so it wasn't water into Kool-Aid. I don't think, but that's the first miracle. And that's a big deal. The great guests at a, at a wedding. And John says, that's the first miracle do, Jesus does to validate his claims to be Messiah. It's more complicated than that. He didn't even want to really want to do it like that then, but he does it to help his mom's situation out. We'll explain that when we get there. Now watch this. H. What does H stand for according to this? Harsh house cleaning. Now go directly across to your right. What does U stand for? Understandable upset. Now you've got four Gospels, but just two categories of Gospels. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic Gospels. They have the same basic synopsis. Galilean ministry, final trip to Jerusalem, Passion Week. Those are the synoptic Gospels, the first three. Then you've got the fourth Gospel, John, which analyzes Jesus' life on the basis of four Passovers. Passover 1 to Passover 2, one year. Passover 2 to Passover 3, second year ministry. Passover 3 to the final Passover, three years of ministry. So those Gospels don't contradict. They correlate quite nicely. But uh, here's the thing. According to the fourth Gospel, Jesus finds the whole temple mechanism corrupt when he begins his ministry. He's just beginning his ministry here, Tom, in uh, in uh, uh, H, right? He's just begun his ministry, just done his, just done his first miracle, right? But Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that Jesus cleansed the temple, found the system very corrupt, and put him out of business for a day. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that happens the week before the crucifixion. So who's right? I think they're both right. And I think it makes a big, big, big statement. When the Messiah finally shows up after thousands of years of prophecy, and after the Messiah is announced by an Elijah-like prophet, John the Baptist, when the first time he comes to the temple complex, it's corrupt. There, a lot of these people are in the religion business to make money, to get rich. Can you believe somebody would use religion to get rich and famous? I mean, that was never my goal, but uh, which is probably a good thing. But, uh, yeah, it's corrupt when he gets there. Three years later, Scott, and, and you know, some, some, even some evangelicals will say, well, he's putting that out of context to make a point, and he just assumes he knows at the end. John specifically could have said, hey, this reminds me of something that happens later. He didn't do that. He uses just straight Greek narrative prose to describe the first one. At the beginning, when the Messiah shows up, the system's corrupt. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which described it the last week, are saying it hadn't changed. Three years later, it hadn't changed. Now, humanly speaking, the young, restless, and reformed people all want to kind of use a business approach to the church, right? Market share, very important. Looks like Jesus wasn't very effective there. I guess he was a total failure, right? I don't think you want to say that. 
I think you want to beware of large bureaucracies, religious, political, or anything, because they tend to get corrupt and just exist to justify their own existence. So rather than explaining one of those away, I think they both happen as stated, and you're finding that when the Messiah shows up, the system's corrupt. It's corrupt after three years. It's corrupt until 70 A.D. when God puts it out of business by the Romans, right? Okay, let's uh, review. Angels announce birth in Bethlehem, carpenter career. What begins the ministry? The baptism and the temptation. Let's call that dove descends, enemy entices. First followers. Who are the first followers? Japan. John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. That'd be good to know. All right, it's going to be testing on that later. Uh, great guess. What happens up there? First miracle happens. Water and wine, right? And then uh, harsh house cleaning. Jesus shows up. The Messiah shows up after thousands of years of prophecy. Systems corrupt. While he's in Jerusalem doing the harsh house cleaning, guess what happens? He has this incredible interview with the greatest teacher in Judaism. His name's Nicodemus. Very religious guy. And Jesus says to him, nobody's so good they can't go to heaven without trusting in me. You can't earn it. He says, unless you're born again, you're not even going to see heaven because this was the most religious guy you could find in Judaism and his, that's not good enough. Okay. Then he immediately goes due north. Our Lord Jesus goes due north from Jerusalem and he goes through Samaria. Why is that so weird? No self-respecting Jew would go through Samaria because that's where the half Jew, half Gentiles lived and they held to a cootie theory of spirituality, and you would get all kinds of religious cooties on you if you intermingled with sinful people like that. Jesus goes right through the middle of it, smack through the middle of it, and bumps into the woman at the well who is so messed up morally, not only would no Jew talk to a Samaritan, much less a Samaritan woman, but none of the Samaritans will talk to the Samaritan woman because she's been married and divorced because of immorality five times, and now she's shacked up with a boyfriend. And that's what Jesus tells her. But he says, if you'd ask me, I'd give you the gift of eternal life. He's telling Nicodemus, nobody's so good they don't need to be saved by grace through faith. He's telling her, nobody's so bad they can't be saved by grace through faith. You can, and we will do this when we get there. We'll compare and contrast those. You can be any different than those two people. And yet Jesus basically gives them the same invitation using different metaphors based on his fear of his old age and is want to start over again and her trying to get water at the well at noon and if you live in the Middle East you don't get water at noon, you get it first thing in the morning or right before sundown, but she's going at noon uh, because she didn't want to have to interact with the caddy of the Samaritan women who would say nasty things about her okay, boom uh, watch this, so that's I and J, incredible interview with Nicodemus, jive at Jacob's well in Samaria kin kick out, I love this and Luke 4 Jesus has all this momentum going. He's been to Jerusalem for his first Passover since he started his ministry. He goes home to Nazareth where he'd been a carpenter for 18 years. And he's asked to read the scripture. It just so happens the bookmarks in Isaiah 61, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. And then he sits down, and you as a good Baptist person, or I'm a good Baptist person, you know, this Mike came up and read scripture, then he sat down. So Jesus came up and read scripture, and then he sat down, right? Now, you sit down on the platform on a stool to do exposition of the scripture that's read. And Jesus gives a real short sermon, which proves you to you that uh, stuff like that is describing, not necessarily prescribing. So just so you'll know, write that down. But so he says, you know, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's known me to preach the gospel of the poor. 
Then he sits down to tell you what it means, and he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You know what he's saying? I am the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, prophesied in Isaiah 61 to his hometown. And somebody's thinking, hey, he made furniture for me. He laid on floor. He didn't go to seminary. Now, granted, he's never done anything wrong, but I mean, who does this guy think he is? And his kin kick him out, which is why he bumps into fishermen for most of his ministry, because rather than basing his ministry in Nazareth, where he grew up and where he presumably would have had his nexus of ministry, he goes to Capernaum, that fishing village, and he's already bumped into fishermen earlier, as we know. So that probably catalyzed that as well. So Ken kick out, and his location of his ministry is not in Nazareth, but Capernaum. Now, M and N, marvelous message, and really I say marvelous messages, nature neutralized, sum up an 18-month period called the Great Galilean Ministry. Where's Galilee, Scott? You're a Bible scholar now. You know Galilee is the northern region as opposed to the southern region, which is where all the rich, fancy, a religious bureaucracy, Jews live. This is where the average guys live. This is where the hated half-breeds live, um, right? And the Great Galilean ministry is where Jesus, the synoptics emphasize it, does lots of preaching, lots of miracles, going down to Jerusalem for Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, and Hanukkah, as it turns out, according to John. But anyway, that's the Great Galilean ministry in which he's preaching things like the Sermon on the Mount. And when you look at the Sermon on the Mount closely, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, He's basically saying, hey, the law is holy, just, and good, but you totally misunderstand it. You're treating the God, the law of Moses like a ladder you can use to climb to God, and it's not going to work because nobody can climb that ladder. Rather than a ladder, it's a mirror that shows you you need a Savior because everybody breaks the law. And there aren't just ten do's and don'ts in the law of Moses. There are, remember what we said in uh, World Religion, 613, according to the Pharisees, six. 613 do's and don'ts. But see, the Old Testament law was like a tractor beam to prepare the world for the person, the Messiah. The sacrificial system emphasizes this. The law proves everybody breaks the law. And we all need somebody to keep the law for us and to pay for our sin debt, right? And so I love Romans 3.20 that says, By the works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight, but through the law comes the knowledge of Sin, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God is available, and the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, all who believe, you know, the whole thing is designed to lead us directly to the greatness of Christ, and then we're told that Christ is the end of the law to all who believe in Him. So, uh, MNN is summarizing a big chunk of the ministry of Christ, where He's doing all these great things, and the problem now for the Jewish leaders is they can't ignore Him. Because everybody in the first century Judaism circle is saying, what's the leaders going to say about him? He looks like the Messiah to us, you know. So when Gallup calls, they're saying, well, we think he's the Messiah, but we haven't heard what the leaders said yet. And what the leaders say? Satanically possessed false prophet. That's what they said to his face. And he said, hey, you know, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You're denying what the Holy Spirit's doing in me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach gospel to the poor kind of thing. So that's a big, and that's the Pike's Peak. And he basically says, no more signs after this. He does miracles on the basis of personal faith and important need. 
But he's no longer doing miracles to prove who he is to the to the nation because any miracle he does is going to be used against him. So anything you say can be can will be used against you. Now, right after in Matthew 12, we see the unpardonable sin. You also see it uh, in uh, Mark 3 and also in Luke. Jesus teaches a series of eight parables that talk about the spiritual dynamics of the period from right then until the second advent. And there are eight separate parables, but the two probably most important are the parable of the soils, where you've got you know the, the, the roadie soil where nothing germinates, the rocky soil, thorny soil, and the good soil. You have germination in three of them, but different levels of growth and fruit. And so he's saying, look, during this inter-advent period, the word's going to be sown, and you're going to get all kinds of reactions. Some people are not going to believe it at all. Others will believe it with minimal uh, effects, and others will really do well. And then you've got the second parable in that eight, the wheat and the weeds. King James says wheat and the tares, but nobody knows what a tear is. So I had a tear in my sock recently, you know, a hole in my sock. But uh, wheat, tear just means weed. And what he's saying there is, you know, during this inter-advent period when the word of God is going to be sown, there's also going to be a counter-sowing of all kinds of isms that need to be wasms. Marxism, existentialism, Mormonism, you know, all this stuff. And it's all going to come up in the end. And at the second advent, Jesus will separate the wheat from the weeds kind of thing. So that's very important. Now watch, we're on the downhill slide from that standpoint of size and crowds, because the crowds slowly dissipate. I don't think they ever, the average guy doesn't ever, the average guy is too smart to believe the party line that Jesus satanically possessed. But they're thinking, well, he can't be the Messiah. Maybe he's just a prophet. And so, and I love this so much, and I hope you can remember this for me, for yourself, really. Uh, Q stands for quizzical questions, and here's where the map really helps us here. Because in Matthew 16, Jesus takes the 12 in the aftermath of being told to his face publicly, he's a satanically possessed prophet, he takes them out of Galilee, out of Jewish territory, up here to Caesarea Philippi, at the base of Mount Hermon. We're going to see Mount Hermon in May, 9,200 feet slab of limestone. Okay, And at the base of that, this water gushes out. It's all snow melt that comes through and comes out perfectly, and that's the water that comes out all through that system. So he goes out of town, they have a retreat, and he basically says, what's the Gallup poll saying about me now? Meaning, in the aftermath of the Jewish leaders saying, I'm satanically possessed. And I think the guys are saying, hey, it's good news. Nobody's saying you're satanically possessed. Some think you're a prophet. Some think you're John the Baptist, which is dumb because they were contemporaries, you know. But uh, you can't trust those Gallup polls. They don't necessarily give you good answers, you know. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're this, that, and you're Jeremiah, so on. It's all good, Dustin. But nobody is saying Messiah. The Gallup poll is not picking up any Messiah, which doesn't mean nobody believes he's Messiah. But his market share is going way down because... The leader says satanically possessed. That's question one. That's question two. And this is a question everybody has to answer. Who do you say that I am? That's all y'all in plural. That's Greek. Who do y'all say now? And 11 of 12 of them are still with him. And Peter hits a grand slam home run speaking for the group. He says, you are the Christ. You're the son of God. We have no doubt about that. We're with you. We don't care what the guys say in Jerusalem. We know who you are. So that's big. That's huge. And when Jesus says, that's the rock, he uses a different word, Petros, instead of Petra. He's not talking about Peter there. He's talking about the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the rock 
on which the church, capital C Church, is built. Oh, reality revealed right after. And by the way, where are they in space when Jesus asked the questions? Are they in Galilee? Say no. Are they in Judea? Say no. They're in Gentile territory, Caesarea Philippi, at the base of Caesarea, uh, this 9,200 uh, tall mountain, foot high mountain, uh, I think I said that right, Mount Hermon. It says, and then Jesus and Peter, James, and Don go up to a tall mountain. They're at the foot of the mountain. That's That's the one it is. Uh, again, the Israelis want you to think it's Mount Maron or something down here, but actually it's there, and we'll tell you that when we get there. But you go up there, and Jesus suddenly is, his glory, which is veiled, is unveiled, and Moses and Elijah show up. Now, how did Peter, James, and John know it's Moses and Elijah? They wear name tags in heaven, right? and they glow in the dark. I don't know, but, uh, you know, Moses is the law, Elijah is the prophets, the whole Old Testament is centered on this person and this plan, and he didn't come to be served, but to serve. Everything's right on schedule, looks like problems from the human point of view, not at all. Now, when you get to S, you're within just a few days, really, of the last week, okay? And S stands for stoning stopped. What was the means of capital punishment under Jewish religious law for uh, heretics. Stoning, right? Uh, and John 8, Jesus had previous in Jerusalem said, before Abraham was, I am. They tried to stone him. Now in John 10, he says, I and the Father are one and the same in essence. I am deity like the God, the Father is deity. And what they try to do? They try to stone him. So every time they're stoning him, he's claiming to be God again. Tomb traumatized uh, Bethany, this, the good thing about this map is it does have Bethany, Bethany. Right between Jerusalem and Bethany, there is a mountain, Mount of Olives. And in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, while Jesus is down there for this uh, period, for Hanukkah, he goes over there and his friend has died. And four days after he's dead, Jesus shows up on purpose late and doesn't resurrect him, but resuscitates him physically. So he's, Lazarus is physically alive again. He'll later die. When Jesus resurrected, you don't die again from that. That's, that's a whole different thing. But that's tomb traumatized. And now uh, we're back to you, which we've talked about. The system is corrupt, just as corrupt or maybe worse. It's really worse, isn't it? Because now they've blasphemed to this point. They've looked at him and, and rejected him. They haven't just rejected the whole concept. Now they rejected him personally. So we, we talked about that. But it's interesting, just a few days before the crucifixion, on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, Jesus basically gives you the content of Revelation in two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25, because he's got his eyes on the prize, okay? He's not denying the cross, but he's, what did Second Peter tell us? He had holiness, heresy, and hope, right? You always have to kind of keep your eyes on the prize, big picture. So the Lord Jesus says, hey, it looks like I'm about to lose big time, but I've totally got this under control. The plan is exactly where it's going to fit. At the second advent, I'm going to be a lion, not a lamb. It's all going to work out. Trust me for that. That's a vision of victory. Washington Wisdom is just before he goes to Gethsemane on Thursday night and gets arrested. And you've got pattern for fellowship, principles of fellowship, and prayer for fellowship. And the first thing he does as the pattern is wash the dirty feet of his disciples. They would have taken a bath, a public bath for this uh, Passover banquet somewhere in the city. Then they would have put their robes back on, put their sandals on, walked to the upper room, got their feet dirty, 
So Jesus was washing their feet. Peter says, don't wash my feet. That's not your job. Jesus says, I can't have fellowship with you unless I wash your feet. Peter says, well, if that's that important, give me a bath. And what does Jesus say? You like taking a bath. You don't need a bath. You need me to wash your feet. And John says, they've all taken the bath. And, and then he says, you've all taken the bath, but not one of you. And John editorial in John 13 says, he's talking about Judas, the one guy who'd never been saved, the guy who never really believed, who hooked his wagon to Jesus, started thinking he was going to be Secretary of State, you know, when Jesus took over from the Romans. It wasn't a political mission. It's much bigger than that. Washing in wisdom. Then E-X-Z. Well, expiatory means to wipe something clean. Expiatory execution is what Christianity is all about. It's not just better social services, even though those are important. It's not just uh, go out into the world and be nice, even though, you know, it's it's nice to be important, but it's more important. I'll forget the rest of it. I don't do it anyway. So, uh, no, that's not good. Uh, this is not just another philosophy of thought. This is the creator taking on humanity and doing something for us we could never do for ourselves and paying the debt of our sin on the cross one time for all. Expiatory means to wipe clean. Jesus died for our sins, and because he died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins, and you can have it if you want it. There's a whole lot of theology going on for you to see and believe that, but when it happens, it's all of grace. It's not about who you are, what you're doing, what you will do. It's about what Jesus is, who he is, and what he's done, what he will do. Yes, yay. Why is the resurrection so important? So many reasons, but it validates the saving power of his death. As I like to say, a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. Can't even get you from Texas to heaven. And it's further from Texas to heaven than Oklahoma. We all know that, right? But the resurrected one, meaning a literal bodily supernatural resurrection, is the only one who can. That's, by the way, the gospel, according to, to Paul, right? The gospel is the truth that Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture, uh, was buried, uh, rose again on the third day, according to Scripture, and he was seen. So that's the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ. And daring to trust him for your eternal life and your forgiveness of sins is how you receive the gift of eternal life. A little kid can do it, but the greatest theologians of all time can't exhaust all the theology behind it. And then what happens 40 days after the, uh, 40 days after the resurrection? Or after the, uh, yeah, after the resurrection. The ascension. So you have 40 days there where Jesus is interacting with the disciples. You can read about that in the book of Acts. And uh, it's pretty cool to think about. But now we're kind of in this inner advent period waiting for the end times. And they may not happen for another thousand years. I've been saying for years, we can't be very far away from the uh, end times because the North Koreans have nukes. They still have nukes. But if they give up their nukes, you know, Pakistan has nukes. You know, and they're tight with the Taliban, Hamas, Hezbollah. So it's, you know, it's never going to go away. But as I close... I told you that we'd have a happy ending. You're happy, right? Um, uh, Michael Card, the, the guy uh, who with the beard and the guitar there at the beginning, says uh, one of the most important lessons, and this guy's really a really deep thinker, one of the most important lessons the Lord has taught me is we are not our gifts. Now, this, Michael Card is mega gifted, man. He's got a master's in biblical studies. I know Julie and David appreciate his music, and some of you guys have heard me play his stuff before. But this guy, not only is great musically, he writes and performs nicely, but his stuff is really biblically thought out. It's really dense, you know. And he's, but he's got all these gifts. I don't have gifts like that. But he says, you know, we are not our gifts. Ultimately, we are not defined in God's sight 
by what we do or what we create. And he says Jesus is a great example of this. Uh, he would not allow hit the crowns to define him by his gifts, by just his physical, supernatural abilities to heal things and walk on water and stuff like that, even though that is part of what he was. We are not our gifts. We are called to give more. Just giving our gifts can be relatively easy, especially if you're really good at something and people are really wild when you do it. You know, it's not somebody like, uh, I don't know, uh, LeBron James, you know, doing a basketball clinic. I mean, all these people adore him. He is probably maybe the greatest basketball player of all time, probably, arguably. And he gets to show how he dunks the balls and stuff, stuff that we could never do. And, you know, but he's not that. He's not just a basketball player. He's not, uh, Tiger Woods isn't a golf scorer. Uh, Mickey Mantle's not just a batting average. Uh, James isn't just a great musician. Uh, Carol's not just a great organizer. Debbie's not just the world's greatest mother. Uh, and she's working on becoming the world's greatest wife. But, you know, I'm a hard grader. Um, uh, we're not our gifts. We're called to give more. We don't just give our gifts, especially the stuff we're good at. It's kind of easy to do that. We're called to give ourselves. I think that's, that's a pretty nice way to say that. Uh, that really resonated with me. That's the real purpose behind our gifts. They're vehicles for giving the self, but it's more than just giving the stuff we're good at. And I've said this many times, I'm going to close with this, but I grew up in a culture, and so not all Southern Baptists were like this, but in Opelika, Florida, in Birmingham, Alabama, the guy in Birmingham would say, at the end of the uh, service, he'd say uh, to the people who came forward, either accept Christ or move the letter or whatever they were doing, he said, if you'll give God one-seventh of your time and one-tenth of your money, he'll bless you. And I thought, you know, as a little kid, that's a great deal. I got no income, so that's easy. And I, I love church. I love coming to church. I'm gonna, I come to church every Sunday if my mom will pick me up and drop me off. That's, that's a problem. Uh, I thought that's easy. So we've kind of dumbed down what our allegiance and discipleship to the God man savior should be to looking like that. I, I like little simplified charts, but you see what I'm saying? What he was saying basically is, you know, tithe and show up for church on Sundays and maybe Wednesdays if you can work that in. And you're fine. And that, you, you kind of give God that slice and everything else is yours. And you don't, you know, kill people and rape people, but I mean, within general thing. That's not what Jesus is talking about, you know? Uh, you deny yourself, take up your cross in public and submit to Him, and you put Him at the center of your pie chart. So I would say, if Jesus is your co-pilot, you're sitting in the wrong seat. And I hope that this uh, study of the life of Christ synthetically like this will just make us fall more and more in love with the Lord Jesus. If you haven't trusted him for salvation, you can do that right where you sit. Uh, for those of us who have trusted in him, it's all about getting him in, center, in the center of the chart and centering on him. Uh, even when we go to OSU, even on prom night, even uh, you know on the Saturday morning, not just on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to get a better sense, not just of information, but a better sense of just how incredible this plan and program you have for us in Jesus Christ and just how perfectly it all works out, even though there's a lot of black tiles in that mosaic. And help us to be able to have more passion and more excitement about walking with and abiding with our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.